0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four K E Y S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: So Ferdy Pacheco basically says, dude, you got to quit because your body is, it can't take this kind of beating. You're starting to experience really bad damage. He tells that to Ali. And Ali refuses to quit. And so Ferdy Pacheco quits because he just said, I don't want to be around for this. And what he said is, I don't want to be around when Ali comes up to me and doesn't know who I am. He doesn't know my name because he's taken such a bad beating. So he quits. Madison Square Garden refuses to host any more of his fights because they're also aware of the physical decline and the damage. So this is all things that are knowable at the time. But he keeps going. He eventually ends up in Las Vegas where he takes such a beating from Larry Holmes that Larry Holmes cries after the fight. It was so upsetting to him. What happened? Then Ali can't even get licensed in the United States, which is pretty remarkable because it wasn't really high standards to get licensed, but he can't. So he ends up fighting in the Philippines in some crazy fight where all the boxers had to share gloves and they were using a cowbell. In betr- I mean, it was just, it was, you know, it's what you would expect, right? And some low rent, you know, unlicensed fighters fighting in the Philippines. And then we know what happened, right? Horrible physical and mental decline because he just really stuck around too long. In a situation where people around him were very clear, like they were quitting on him because they were saying to him, you need to quit. And then when he refused, they were walking away. So this is the thing about perseverance versus quitting is that context matters. Well, thank you for having me back.
0: It is my pleasure to have you back. I always learn so much from talking to you. Uh, you are one of those rarefied guests who has appeared now for a third time on the unmistakable Creative. Um, you Wait, I workout. want one of
1: those. You know how they give people the... The jackets on Saturday Night Live, like the Five Timers <laughs> Club. Like, I want one of those velvet jackets.
0: You know, we should get those made for our, our, our multi-time guests. Like, you're you're in a league of probably 10 guests. It's like you, Danielle oh. Laporte, and a handful of other people. There's not many of oh, them exciting. that we have back multiple times. Uh, you have a new book out, Quit the Power of Knowing When to Walk Away, all of which we will get into. And as I was telling you, it was my favorite of all your books so far. But before Thank we you. get into that, uh, I was trying to think back to all the questions that I had asked you and went back and listened to this morning you know, to your previous interviews. Like, what have I not oh. asked you before? So I thought I'd start by asking you, what is the very first job that you ever had and what impact did that end up having on where you've ended up with your life and your career?
1: Well, hold on. Does like babysitting count?
0: I mean, anything counts. I mean, you know, I worked at McDonald's I mean, in actual, high school. I like
1: real job with an employer. My first
0: job is McDonald's in high school. So, yeah. Kentucky
1: Fried Chicken.
0: Oh, okay, cool. All right. What did I, you learn in from the that time?
1: Job? Do, I don't. It, it was a while ago. You had to wear like this brown polyester getup thing.
2: Mm-hmm. It
1: it was really, it was gross. Yeah, <laughs> but it was a job.
0: <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I, I don't know about you, but like when I worked in fast food, I had this really. Later in life, I appreciated so much what that taught me about how hard those people work and just how much privilege that I was blessed with, because it took me years to recognize that, you know, for me, that was just a stepping stone on the way to college. And for a lot of those people, that was their daily reality. So I'm curious, what kinds of lessons did you learn that you kind of recognized maybe only in retrospect for that job?
1: Well, I mean, I think it's similar. It was interesting. My my The way I got that job was because my father was a school teacher
2: mm-hmm. and
1: um, yeah. And at some point the the school that he taught at started offering summer school, like kind of like it was like an advanced summer school from, for people around the country to come and um, do classes during the summer, probably to help them get into college. But um, when he first started working there, when I was young, they didn't have that program. And so he didn't have any work during the summer. And so he got a job, you know, a temporary thing at a place called Howdy Beef and Burger, which was, it was in New England. It was, it was a very, very small chain in New England that was basically just like McDonald's. And he met a guy named Dickie Dugan um, there, who is one of those people that you're talking about, right? Like he was my dad's, somewhere around my dad's age, but he was working at Howdy Beef and Burger. And it was because that was his job. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like my dad, it was making money during the summer to, you know, sort of, supplement the teaching um, yeah. salary. So Dickie Dugan at some point got the manager's position over at Kentucky Fried Chicken. And so when I was 14, my you know, my dad called up Dickie Dugan and said, hey, you know, can you hire my daughter? And actually my son, because my brother worked there too. Um, yeah. And that's, that's how I, that's how I ended up there. And the thing is, it is actually really hard work. I mean, it seems like really silly, stupid stuff, but you had to memorize like what exactly what went into every single combination. Uh, if it was a two piece box or a three piece box or whatever, you had to know you had to be able to identify the pieces, know what went uh-huh. in there. And this was when the cash registers didn't work do the work for you. So every single person who actually worked a cash register had to have all the prices on the menu memorized. Mm-hmm. So that was part of your job. Um, and they would quiz you on it. And you also had to have the tax memorized. Wow. So like this was, I mean, th- these people were smart and they worked really hard. And the people who worked back in the kitchen were standing over like boiling hot pots of oil, you know, with no air conditioning in the middle of summer. Hmm. So, I mean, definitely makes you appreciate like not only the value of hard work, but also that it's really nice not to have to do that kind of work too. And we we ought to appreciate it.
0: Yeah. Well, I I remember exactly what you're talking about because I've seen now the digital cash registers where they just push a button And I remember we didn't have to memorize prices, but if anybody changed their order after they made, you know, like the whole thing finished, you had to like call a manager over and have them fix it. It was such a nightmare. Um, But the reason I I brought up that particular uh, question, you know, to to start with was because I thought it was very relevant to the idea of quitting. So my parents actually wouldn't let me quit after the first two or three months. They were like, no, you're going to stick it out. And they made me stick it out for eight months. And then finally, right around the time, you know, uh, we were submitting our college applications. They were like, all right, you're done. It's April. We'll let you quit. And, you know, I think that for me, that was a valuable lesson um, in a lot of ways. I don't think I would have learned what I did if I hadn't stuck it out for that long. Cause there were plenty of opportunities to bail out and I never took them. So I'm curious, like when did you quit that job? And uh, you know, How in the world did we arrive at this entire perspective on quitting? Because I think that, you know, like I said, this book has so many layers to it when we think about this idea of quitting.
1: Yeah. So interestingly enough, like I I didn't, I didn't really like, I didn't really quit that job um, because the job was only during the summer and I went to boarding school. Mm -hmm. So I did the job for the summer, which include like biking there, which was five, maybe 10 miles away or something like that. It was a, it was a long bike. It was like yeah. 10 or 20 miles. Um, and then like school would start and I would be done working for the summer. And then I, I came back the next summer, worked again. And then the following summer, I actually went and studied abroad. So it was just kind of like the natural state of things mm-hmm. that I didn't quit. Um, yeah. uh, and I'm not sure, I don't think it ever occurred to me to quit that job because uh, that was how I got my spending money for the year. <laughs>
2: Yeah.
1: Oh, it wasn't really, I don't think it was really an option. Um, Mm -hmm. At least, you know, not as I saw it. I mean, look, here's the thing. What your parents had you do, which is like stay in something that's hard. Yeah. Because that's a good lesson. I I don't really agree. I, I don't really disagree with rather. Let me say that again. What your parents had you do, which was like stay in something that's hard Because there's like a lesson in seeing that there's a payoff. There are long-term benefits to things and you shouldn't quit things just because like you don't like them, right? Which is a bad reason to quit anything like, uh, I just don't like it or it's hard. That's not a good reason to quit. I think that they were delivering a good lesson to you. The problem is, is that we overdo it Mm -hmm. because what happens is that we lose sight of the idea that what really matters when you're doing something is. What are the long-term benefits to this thing that I'm doing? So the benefit of grit is that it gets you to stick to hard things that are worthwhile. But the problem is that when you take it too far, it gets you to stick to hard things that aren't worthwhile. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's up to the parent in your case to sort of figure out what that calculation is about like for Shrini, is this a good long-term lesson for him? compared to the other things that he could be doing with this time, is there another job that he might be able to take? Or is this a good lesson to sort of learn what it's like for most people to do this? Like all of those types of calculations, I'm sure they thought it through and it seems like it was a good decision. But like, I talked to somebody the other day who said, my parents really wanted me to play a musical instrument.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And so I got to choose the instrument and I chose the saxophone. And, and it just turned out that like, For some reason, he hated the taste of the reed in his mouth. (laughs) It was like super excruciating for him to have a reed in his mouth. It was awful. So he complained to his parents that he wanted to quit and they wouldn't let him. Because they said, no, you know, this is a lesson. It's sort of similar to what your parents said, but less well thought through. You need to do this because it's going to build your character and you shouldn't just quit things that you start. But he, you know, he could have played the trombone instead. It wasn't like he was saying, I want to quit learning a musical instrument.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He was saying, I want to quit this instrument. Yeah. And they wouldn't allow him to because they went to that place where where it's basically like, while grit gets you to stick to hard things that are worthwhile, it gets you to also stick to hard things that aren't worthwhile. Yeah. And that's the thing that we need to pay attention to is what's the difference between those two things? Because too much of a good thing is a bad thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I mean, I mean, was going to ask you, you know, when it came to extracurricular activities, when you were young, were there things that you quit? Because I remember when the musical instrument example is funny because I played the tuba for almost 13 years. And my dad actually won because he was a postdoc. He didn't have the money to buy an instrument. So he said, pick one that the school provides for you just in case you quit. Because otherwise, you know, that takes us into sunk cost bias. Like, they probably would have been really pissed off if I quit after sinking $1,000 into an instrument. Um, so I was curious, like, were there things that you quit when you were young? And where is that line for kids in particular? Like, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, the saxophone thing. But, um, you know, because like you said, it's not a good reason just because you don't like it or because it's hard. And often, I mean, most people learning to play musical instruments sound like they're sacrificing animals. That.
1: <laughs> That's true, although in this case this it was physical discomfort.
0: Yeah, true. well trust me, um, I played the tuba much to the dismay of my family and I was very committed to it much to the dismay of my sister who hated it.
1: Yeah, but that's okay because that's what your values were. Like if you were committed, you were getting enjoyment out of it. Yeah. Um, You know what, I wasn't... Uh, So there was one thing that I really, really badly wanted to quit which was the piano. So I, my mom who... Was a beautiful singer and she played piano really well. Decided she wanted you know me to do something musical, uh, and so she had me take piano lessons. Now you need to understand, Shreene, I'm tone deaf. <laughs> <laughs> like whatever it sounded like when you played the tuba is what it sounds like when I try to sing a song. Mm. It's just unrecognizable.
0: Well, I just, um, just so we're clear, I was good. I made all state band and got into the USC School of Music. So
1: I, in the beginning, in the beginning, <laughs> yeah. in yeah. the beginning, not okay. eventually. In the yeah, beginning, that is
0: true. Fair enough. Fair.
1: So, well, you're the one who said you sounded like a screeching cat. So.
0: Yeah, no, in the beginning. I mean, of course, even when you're good, a tuba is not the most pleasant thing to listen to.
1: Oh, you know? OK, fair, fair. Okay, Nobody so, wants to
0: serenade their prom date with a tuba unless they definitely don't want to get late on prom night.
1: Well, maybe that's the maybe the one who wants to be serenaded is the love of your life, right? Like maybe that's <laughs> that's how you figure out they're your soulmate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so anyway, so I, I took piano lessons and I remember this very well. I was eight years old. I went to my mother after a little while. And I just I literally said to her, let's face it, I think we can both agree I'm never going to be good at this. And like I was being very, you know, very serious and she would not let me quit, you know, in the in the service of building character. She's like, no, you have to start things that you, you know, you have to keep doing things that you you start. You have to keep with it. You committed to it. This is what you have to do. And man, I had to suffer through that piano for like a freaking year. Mm-hmm. And I didn't learn anything from it, except this was dumb because I was really reasonable trying to explain that I wasn't going to be good at it. And what I was trying to express, I'm sure not well, because I was eight, is that even at that time, like, I remember very clearly saying, like, what a waste of my time
2: mm-hmm. that
1: I'm doing this. And obviously what's implied by that is I could be using this time for other things. Yeah. So when my mother did finally allow me to quit, because it was an after school thing that I was doing, I started doing gymnastics instead which is mm-hmm. what I really wanted to do. And uh, I stuck with that till I was 14. Yeah. Until I went to school, until I went to boarding school. I um, was point, I did other sports. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's like really like my main memory of thinking about a quitting decision or not was just like begging. Like I was begging to quit because I was like, this is a waste of our time. Like it's, it's not something I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I'm bad.
2: Yeah.
0: I mean, I, I had an experience in college and I think this this takes us, you know, nicely into sort of the book itself. Like um, I remember I was in college in the, you know, mid 90s when the Internet was in its infancy. Yahoo went public the year I graduated from high school. So, you know, at a place like Berkeley in the Bay Area, everybody wanted to be a computer science major. I took one semester and somehow barely squeaked by. And then we got into the introductory computer science class. And I think eight weeks into the class, I was, it was very clear that I was going to get an F in that class. And I realized I was like, wow, I have no aptitude for this whatsoever. But that's the thing I realized is that so many people stick with things where they don't have any aptitude or any natural advantages, right? You know, My old mentor used to say, he was like, you know, you have to look at both the probability and possibility of your success. And he said the problem with a lot of the sort of personal development world, um, which I think you just really expanded on beautifully in your book, was that we don't look at the probability and we only focus on the possibility of the outcome that we want.
3: You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection.
7: look, here, here's the, here's the issue is
1: we, quitting means failing.
2: Mm-hmm. Like
1: that, that's kind of synonymous to what it means. And so if we haven't, like when we, when we walk away from something, we just feel like it's, we're a failure. It, like we feel like the loser, like, let me say that again. Quitting you know, quitting means failing, right? It's like in the real sense, you could be doing something that isn't going well, but you could still turn it around as long as you keep doing it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's only that moment that you quit that you have failed. That's the yeah. moment that you for sure, like surely can't, can't recover the cause. And, you know, and regardless of that, like even if you quit something that's going pretty well, you still sort of feel like you failed, like somehow you didn't stick it out. And. We can contrast that to grit, which feels like character building. And, you know, the heroes of the story are the ones who stick it out. And then, you know, so then we have like these, these objectives, right? That we're trying to head toward. And if we haven't reached it, then that's the, you know, how do we ever walk away when that's the moment that we feel like we failed? Mm I think it's just, I think it's, I think it becomes a very (laughs) sticky problem for the way that we treat these two things. And it, and it causes us to stay in things that really aren't going well way too long, mm-hmm. which is really a tragedy because yeah. we could be using all that time to do other things.
0: Mm-hmm. You open the book uh, with two different stories. And I, I'd love for you to share them. You talk about Muhammad Ali, which you know I kind of knew that story. I didn't know it in as much detail as you told it in. Mm. You tell us a bit about that because I, I remember thinking, wow, what, what, what a tragic ending to, to a career.
1: Yeah, so I think this is—I think this is a good example of this sort of tension between grit and quit, right? So Muhammad Ali is um, the heavyweight champion of the world. He's beaten Sonny Liston at this time. He's Cassius Clay, uh, and then he changes his name to Muhammad Ali because he
7: he uh, converts to the Nation of Islam, and the
1: Vietnam War breaks out, and he becomes a conscientious objector because of his religion. So this was like super controversial that he refused to to go and fight. And he got stripped of his title. So he's no longer the heavyweight champion of the world and nobody will license him. And he's basically suspended from boxing. So he doesn't get to box for four years. And you know, like boxing is a young man's game. And so this is like a pretty crucial four years in his life. So once all of that resolves, he determines that he wants to be heavyweight champion of the world again. And it takes him four more years to even be able to get a heavyweight uh, bout, the, a, a title bout. So by this time, he's like in his early 30s, which is pretty old for a boxer. Um, and so he sort of worked his way up. He's got his, his title bout. Uh, and it's against George Foreman, the Rumble in the Jungle. And George Foreman's undefeated. He's, he's humongous. Nobody lasts more than like a round or two with him. Like he is a force. And so Ali is going to go in and fight him. And you know, Ali's an underdog. Nobody thinks he can actually win. They all think that this is insane, uh, that he shouldn't be fighting this, this fight. Um, and we know what happened. You know, he won. Um, he won actually by changing his strategy. He used to be like, you know, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Like he, it, the whole thing was, he, it was very hard to hit him because he was so fast. And then he would come in and hit you, but he was older now and he wasn't as fast. And so he basically like laid on the ropes and allowed George Foreman to pummel him until George Foreman got really tired. Mm. Um, So, you know, that's a big beating that you're taking because George Foreman's super big guy. Um, So anyway, but he wins. And, you know, I think that this is, this is a, the good side of grit is that sometimes when you're really gritty, it gets you to stick to good, you know, hard things that are going to get you there. And sometimes you see other things, you know, you see things that other people don't see. So it's kind of, you know, he sort of, is it, like a symbol of the value of grit. But here's where we get to the downside, that grit also makes you stick to things that aren't worthwhile anymore. Um, he kept fighting. And it became pretty clear that he was experiencing really bad physical damage. So this isn't something, was someone actually who just sort of heard about, she, they hadn't read the book yet, but they had heard about the story said, well, just because he ended up with Parkinson's, which is what we know happened, isn't that resulting because he couldn't have known that at the time. But that's not true because his fight doctor, Ferdy Pacheco was telling him that he shouldn't be fighting anymore. Um, they were looking at, what was happening particularly in terms of his kidneys and it, it wasn't good like he just wasn't healthy enough to fight so ferdy pacheco basically says like dude you gotta quit because your body is it can't take this kind of beating you're starting to experience really bad damage um and he tells that to ali and ali refuses to quit and so ferdy pacheco quits Because he just said, I don't want to be around for this. And what he said is, I don't want to be around when Ali comes up to me and doesn't know who I am. He doesn't know my name because he's taken such a bad beating. So he quits. Madison Square Garden refuses to host any more of his fights because they're also aware of the physical decline and the damage. So this is all things that are knowable at the time, but he keeps going. He eventually ends up in. Las Vegas, where he takes such a beating from Larry Holmes that Larry Holmes cries after the fight. It's It was so upsetting to him what happened. Then Ali can't even get licensed in the United States, which is pretty remarkable because, you know, it wasn't really high standards <laughs> to get licensed, but he can't. So he ends up fighting in the Philippines in some crazy fight where like all the boxers had to share gloves and They were using a cowbell in between. I mean, it was just, it was, you know, it's what you would expect, right? And some low rent, you know, unlicensed fighters fighting, um, fighting in the Philippines. And then we know what happened, right? Like horrible physical and and mental decline because he just really stuck around too long. Mm -hmm. In a situation where people around him were very clear, like they were quitting on him because they were saying to him, you need to quit. And then when he refused, they were, They were walking away. So, you know, this is the thing about about perseverance versus quitting is that context matters. As he was going towards George Foreman, he was physically healthy. Was he older? Sure. But he hadn't, you know, there wasn't a lot of physical damage there. And, you know, while there were a lot of naysayers, his team was certainly on board with him. And, you know, he probably saw something that other people didn't see. But the problem is that grit isn't good in all contexts, not even in the context of a very gritty person like Muhammad Ali, who's managed to achieve amazing things because of his grit because taken too far, you can see what happens to him, you know, after the foreman fight and it's completely tragic.
2: Hmm.
0: Well, you go, you know, uh, into the earlier chapters, you talk about this idea of turnaround times using, uh, Climbing Everest is an example. And the one and only movie I've ever seen about Everest, everybody died or, you know, basically got stuck on the mountain. I was like, yep, not on my bucket list to ever even think about climbing Everest. Um, But you say that their turnaround times are there to prevent people from making poor decisions to keep going when they're in the shadow of the summit, building into a climbing plan. Three crucial concepts. The first is that persistence is not always a virtue. The second is that making a plan for when to quit should be long done, d- done long before you're facing the quitting decision. And then third and perhaps the most important is the turnaround time, which is a reminder that the real goal in climbing Everest is not to reach a summit. It is understandably to basically come back to the mountain uh, and return safely to the base of the mountain. So why in the world do we even ignore the whole concept of turnaround times? Like, why does we, people even take people when not take this into consideration?
1: So. Uh, Yeah, a couple of things. I mean, on the last point, which is the mo- most important, it's not getting these decisions right Uh, has opportunity costs that <laughs> are associated with it, which is why the goal is really to get back down safely. Because if you don't get back down safely, you can't experience all the opportunities that you would have in the future. Because you're dead. So yeah. uh, that's true of anything, right? If I'm in one job, that means I can't be holding other full-time jobs or uh, so on and so forth. So like any any time that we have our attention on something, that we're pursuing something, it's costing us the ability to do other things with that time and attention. So that's, that's what the turnaround times are trying to get you to understand is that when you start up the mountain, there are certain things that you're trying to gain,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? Like doing something that no other person has done before. And there's certain things that you're sacrificing, like your physical comfort. There's money that you're sacrificing. Um, but the gains you're predicting that the benefits outweigh the costs. But there's a point when you're climbing where that calculation can shift, where the costs now outweigh the benefits. So one of those, for example, could be like if a blizzard comes in, Mm -hmm. you know, then you probably shouldn't start for the summer when there's a blizzard because the, the calculation has changed. But it turns out that another thing just has to do with time which is you don't want to descend the mountain uh, and get to what's called the Southeast Ridge, which is like this really narrow spot on the mountain, which is very dangerous um, if you're in darkness. And so when you summit on summit day, 1 p.m. is the turnaround time. And that's all that means is that no matter where you are in the mountain, it doesn't matter if you reach the summit or not, you have to turn around at that time so that you aren't encountering the Southeast Ridge in the darkness. Because they figured out that that's the time that the equation shifts, right? Where the cost now weigh, weigh the benefits. So this is, this is you know, something that they employ in mountain climbing. People don't always follow it, but they're more likely to. And uh, interestingly enough, in, the, in the, the movie, the one movie that you saw where you said, well, everybody died or like got stuck up there. There were three people who did not. And there were three people who followed the turnaround time. Yeah, Their names were Dr. Stuart Hutchinson, John Tasky and Lou Kaczynski, and they turned around at 11.30 a.m. because they figured out that it was still three hours to the summit. So that was going to be 2.30, which was well past the turnaround time. So they might as well just turn around now. Yeah. And and they were in that expedition, right? But we don't even remember them, even though they were in the movie that you saw. Mm-hmm. And they're in the book that that was based on called Into Thin Air by John Krakauer. Yeah. Okay. So, so... So that's just kind of a long way around to your question of why don't why don't we just sort of have these kinds of turnaround times as a general rule. And I think the reason is that, sorry, I think the reason is that we have an intuition. I mean, Sh- Shrina, you can tell me if you have this intuition that, you know, after we start something, if there are really clear signals that we now encounter after the fact, that would tell us that we should
7: quit, that we will. Like, obviously. Mm
2: -hmm.
7: Right? Like,
1: if you're climbing a mountain and a snowstorm comes in, you're going to turn around. Like, duh. Why wouldn't you? If you take a job and it turns out that your boss boss is toxic, obviously you're going to go look for another job. Like It just seems like so incredibly obvious to us that we would pay attention when things aren't going well. If you're, if you're, You know, if you have a project at work that's now like, you know, over budget and delayed and it doesn't look like that's going to get better anytime soon. Obviously, you're going to notice that. And you're going to shut the thing down. So that's our intuition. But decades of science, particularly science from someone named uh, Barry Staw, who's a brilliant guy, has shown that that's not true. It just isn't true. In fact, it's not just that we don't do the thing that we think we'll do just walk away when we get those negative signals. But we actually will like escalate our commitment to the cause. We double and triple down on it. Mm -hmm. We become more committed to the thing that isn't going well, which is just so confounding. It's so against what our intuition is. (coughs)
2: Excuse
0: me.
1: No worries. I hope you're okay. Yeah, I'm fine. Okay. Um it's it's just so confounding because it it so completely blows up what our intuition is about what we do in those situations. And that's why we need turnaround times, Mm -hmm. because we have to realize that we can't trust ourselves in the moment to make the right decision. So we have to think about it in advance and basically say, like, what are the conditions under which I would stop? Which is what a turnaround, like if it's if it's 1 p.m., I have to stop. I've got to turn around. And by setting that in advance, you're just much, much more likely to follow through.
0: Well, it's funny you say that because um we planned, tried to plan three conferences. The first one was a, a stunning success. The second one was an abysmal failure. And I went past the turnaround time. The third one was in 2019. I remember it was right around mm-hmm. Thanksgiving, Christmas, and we had sold maybe 25 tickets. And I remember thinking, you know what, I've done this before. I know how this goes. And I know that I can, I, it took me losing about $2,000 before I pulled the plug because I was like, wait a minute, we're not going to sell 500 tickets by April. Like, this is ridiculous. And I pulled the plug before Christmas because I remember the last time we attempted it, my whole Christmas vacation was ruined right. trying to make this thing succeed. And so I remember somebody was like, oh, you need to be energetically invested. I was like, that sounds like a bunch of new age horse shit. I'm like, you know yes. what? That, I'm like, I'm financially invested. I'm sorry, but like you can invest your energy, but my money is on the line here, and I pulled the plug. And I guess so. I guess the question for me is: so somebody wants, you know, I think the, the counter argument that some people will make is like, "Oh, if you say, okay, I'm going to quit at this point, it becomes almost a self fulfilling prophecy." Which you know, that's kind of a. a I, I don't entirely agree with that, but um, I'm just curious, you know, what your take is on that because you're talking about the states yeah, and dates no. idea,
2: right?
1: I You know, I hate this because I think that's what people say, too, about don't have a backup plan. Yeah, Like, if you have a backup plan, you can't possibly succeed. It's like, that's ridiculous. So I'm guessing with the second one, with the second conference, that looking back, you realize that there were early signals Mm -hmm. that that was going to be a loser that you did not heed. Of course not. Right. And so now the third time comes around and you heed those signals. Does it mean that you weren't trying? Of course not. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is the thing that we need to understand. It's like if I start a project and I say, okay, if I'm not in this particular state by this particular date or time, I really need to shut this down. Does it mean you're not going to try to make it succeed? That's absurd. Because no. you want to be successful. You want to do the right thing. You want, you want people to see that you're accomplishing big, audacious, audacious, you know, goals like and achieving those things. The idea that you have such a low opinion of humanity that if you somehow give yourself an exit door or not even, not even, first of all, giving yourself an exit door doesn't mean you're going to walk through it, which I guess is what people think about the backup plan. Like, make sure you have no safety net beneath you. Like, oh my God, what bad advice to give people. Mm -hmm. You're going to leave them with no option if it doesn't work out. I'm pretty sure that's going to make them keep playing on the field when they have a concussion.
2: Yeah.
1: Which is so damaging to them. But even so, like with that door, if you just have a list of things like, like only pull this in an emergency, right? Mm -hmm. And here are the things that mean emergency, that somehow that means you're not going to try. You're going to sit idle in the room. It's just, it goes against everything that we know about human nature.
0: So coincidentally, that
1: doesn't make any sense.
0: And coincidentally, right after we pulled the plug on that thing, the pandemic started.
1: Well, which is, yes, that, that would be coincidental. So we should not pat ourselves <laughs> on the back for that. Yeah. What we should pat ourselves on the back for is that you looked at the first time that you failed
5: mm-hmm. and said,
1: man, you know, honestly, there were a lot of signals that that was going to happen. If I was looking at like the pacing of ticket sales or whatever, I can't believe I kept going. Yeah. And ended up losing money when it was very clear I ought to have turned around, you know? And so when the second time came around, you're tracking that same stuff and you said, "Oh crap, we're not on track. This is ridiculous." And you paid attention to the signals on that time around. Mm-hmm. You know, so I did a, I did a exercise with some sellers at a SaaS company. So they're they're selling a a CDP, a customer data platform. And the thing about um the thing about sellers is that they're super gritty. Right? Like they live to close the deal. But the problem is that we all have limited time and attention to spend on anything. And so if, you're ta- if, you, if you start down, you know, pursuing a lead and you won't stop pursuing it until it's 100% dead, that is time and attention that you could be using to pursue other leads that are more worthwhile or developing new leads, right? That where you can do that exploration and see if they're more worthwhile. So it's, it's actually really important for your sellers to be apportioning their time in a, a way that is causing them to spend most of their time on the, on the better opportunities. Mm-hmm. But we know that once they start pursuing a lead, they're never going to drop it. So this is really counter to what you want them to be doing because it means they're wasting a lot of time on, on a uh, low value opportunities. So we just did basically sort of similar to, I'm sure what you were thinking about as you went into conference three. We just did an exercise with them where. We sent out a prompt, which was, you know, imagine that you got a lead through an RFP or RFI and it's six months later and the deal is lost. Looking back, you realize there were early signals that that was gonna occur. Uh, What were they? And so it was like, you know, 40 sellers and they, you know, all sort of had their own lists, and we sort of looked at them, but there were some themes that came out. Like one of the really strong themes was in the first meeting, the lead only wanted to talk about price.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that was it. They want to know about the product. They didn't want anything. They, they just wanted to know what our pricing was. So, you know, I mean, obviously that's a bad signal because it probably means that you're, you're being used as a stocking horse. They don't really care about your product. Um, and they're asking you about price for some other reason that doesn't have to do with buying. Um, you know, another would be like, they already have a competitor installed. So we turned these things that they said to us into kill criteria, which are, you know, it's just a broad idea, you know, turnaround time is a kill criteria, which is, okay, if I see these things, it's the sign on the exit door, right? If Mm -hmm. I see these set this set of things occurring, that will tell me that I ought to kill what I'm doing. I should stop. So we turned that into kill criteria, which then allowed them to quit more easily when they were getting these bad signals. Because otherwise what happens is that, you know, you're talking to the seller and you're like, well, doesn't this, this lead has the competitor installed? Like, why are you still pursuing them? And they'll swear up and down that they can win it.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: They'll just swear up and down that they can win it. And the thing is sometimes they will, but at too low a probability to make it worth anybody's time.
2: Yeah.
1: That's the thing that we have to remember. So you have to figure out how do you get people to exit these things? When essentially like they're standing in a blizzard on the top of Mount Everest and you want them to get back down to the bottom.
0: Yeah, I mean, I remember that the, on the second one that we pulled the plug now, I called my mentor and he said, listen, he was like, you should have learned this from the first go around. Don't spend any money on this unless it's from the money you generated from ticket sales. And he said, look, you might burn a few bridges with your speakers. He said, you'll recover from that. He said, recovering yeah. from $50,000 in the hole. He's like, that's going to be a nightmare. Yeah. Uh, he said, you won't recover from that. So that was kind of, you know, the the wake up call for me. But one thing that you say is that quitting on time will usually feel like quitting too early. And I wanted to talk about it in the context of something else you said. You said that there's a well-known heuristic in management consulting that the right time to fire someone is the first time it crosses your mind. And if we don't cut our losses when it's warranted, those losses will continue to accumulate. And I think that in- intrigued me in particular because there are definitely people I've kept way longer than I thought I sh- th- that I should have.
1: Like all the people. <laughs> yeah. I mean,
0: they're, they're <clears throat> literally I'm just like, wow, why did we wait this long? To fire this person, and you know, I I was <clears throat> kind of shocked. Like it, it just, you know, I kept thinking, okay, maybe it'll get better, or something. You know, some small signal would be like, oh, okay, maybe it's getting better. Like I was just kind of not willing to do it on the first, you know, thought. And it crossed my mind enough times where I finally just I had to reach my wits end before I did it.
1: Yeah. So <laughs> I love this. So this is like super fertile ground. So interrupt me if I go on too long. No, no, this, go this, this is no fun. <laughs> um. Okay, so first of all, let's think about what you just said there, that like you had to be like at your wit's end, like literally done in order to get to it. And this is kind of this weird, like this paradox about quitting, which is that the reason why having the option to quit is so valuable is because when we make the decision to start, in this case, when we when we make the decision to hire somebody, it's made under really a high degree of uncertainty. You know very little about the person, like you have their CV. Got some recommendations and a few, a handful of meetings. Okay, so really a paucity of information, um, and then there's also just luck involved. Like you, you could hire them, and then some something could happen. Like maybe all of a sudden they're going through a divorce, or you know whatever. So what that means is that, uh, wow, it's that's really tough, right? Because uh, like most things that we choose to start, we just don't know a lot when we actually do choose to start it. The solution to that is that you're going to discover new information after the fact, right? And sometimes you're going to say to yourself things like, I wish I knew then what I knew now. Like that's, that's that feeling of incomplete information, like hitting you in the face, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's where the option to quit is so valuable. Because the option to quit is what allows you to react to the new information. So you hire someone, you're making some sort of forecast, like of the people I've seen. This person seems like the best person for the job but then you're going to find out a whole bunch of stuff after you hire them and then you can quit because firing an employee is obviously quitting. It's the mm-hmm. same thing. Yeah. Um, You're quitting the employee. Okay, so that all sounds fine and good, except the problem is this, that the decision to quit is also made under uncertainty. So when you're deciding to quit, you can stay on the path you're on or you, or there's, you know, many other paths that you could choose. Like, so you could think about not, you know, not even filling the role, like what would it, what would that look like? Or what, what do I think the range of candidates are going to look like or whatever? So as you're thinking about like, you know, path A versus path B, um, it's not clear, right? Because, you know, as you're considering it, like that first time it comes to mind, there's still tons of chances that it it could turn around. You don't know, maybe, maybe this person's going to get it together and they're going to end up being a great employee, so on and so forth. You know, and if you switch, it's like, ooh, but what if I can't find somebody that's good,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? So, so now you you have all of this uncertainty there, and then you're living in this this thought of like, well, what if I let them go and I go and go on a job search and I can't find somebody, or I find somebody new and they're bad, right? Because it's it's very uncertain. So, when I know what ends up happening is that we won't switch until we know for sure. Until there is no other, I mean, Richard Daler said this to me, I think so well. He said, the only time we're really willing to quit is when it's really actually not a choice anymore. <laughs> because as you said, like, because I'm at my wits end, I, can't, I literally can't take it. Yeah. Right. Then all of a sudden you're willing to quit because that's the moment, you know, there is no chance to make it work. And as we sort of roll that back, like as we're trying to accumulate that certainty, like why are we trying to get so certain before we're willing to do it? Because if you let them go before that, it means you failed. It's the moment that you go from failing to having failed. That's that transition moment. And as an employer who's managing somebody, who's hired somebody, you don't want to let them go partly because you're going to feel really bad about yourself for having made a mistake. Mm -hmm. But what's ending up happening is that you've got someone now who's continuing in that role way longer than they should, who isn't doing good work. You're preventing yourself from getting somebody who would do good work in that job, or maybe allowing other employees to pick up the slack in the meantime, you know, obviously with consent, right? And that obviously would be better than the situation you're in, particularly as it deteriorates and gets worse and worse and worse, right? So yeah this is just a general problem. Like what you're experiencing is that we t- tend to get to the quitting decision too late. And there, were, there was a really fun, um, there was a, a really fun thing that Stephen Levitt did, who wrote, wrote uh, Freakonomics, um, which kind of like demonstrates this that I think is really cool. So he put up a website and it was basically like, Srini, like you're thinking like, should I, should I keep this employee or not? And you could go to the website and you could put that decision in, and then the website would flip a virtual coin for you. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, like, heads, you keep the employee on, tails, you let them go. So, like, you, I don't know if you're, I, I when you read that, you're like, who would actually do that? Mm-hmm. Um, and 20,000 people did it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, like, bear work with me here for a second. So, do you, do you, do you like, do you see the intuition that if somebody was willing to go and flip a coin to make this decision, that they must think the decision is 50-50?
0: Yeah, maybe kind of like either that or they're just trying to avoid responsibility because they don't want the the discomfort of, you know, hiring it or, or firing somebody, even though maybe it's like, oh, I, I want to fire this person when I'm going to leave it to a coin flip.
1: Well, possibly, but, but like, yeah, I mean, I, so I can see that, but so let's think about this though.
7: Like, so you're committing to do what it says.
1: So if it says keep them, you're, you're committing to keep them. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I guess you could not keep them, but um, even so, but you're, you're, you're basically committing to what the coin tells you. Mm -hmm. So if, if firing the person were a clear winner or quitting your job was a clear winner or whatever the decision is, you know, leaving your relationship was a clear winner, there wouldn't really be a need to flip the coin. Yeah. And if staying in your position or keeping your employee on or staying in your relationship was a clear winner, there also really wouldn't be a need to flip the coin. So like, if you're going to flip the coin, you have to think it's close enough that you're not sure like which is the better path. So you're going to go leave it up to a coin. hmm so in that case, what you would expect is that whatever the coin told you whether to stick or, or quit, that the stickers and quitters would kind of be equally happy after the fact. I mean, because it was like, a, the, it was a close call decision in the first place. And it turns out that that's not at all what you find. What you find, what he found, what Levitt found was that two and six months later, the quitters were happier mm-hmm. on average. Yeah. And so what that tells you is that at the time that people are experiencing that as a close call, it's not actually close at all. Like quitting is a clear winner. And because to your point of like your description of letting people go. You need to accumulate so much certainty around the decision before you're willing to do it. Mm-hmm. and that kind of certainty is too late. Like, think about this, Srini. Like, imagine if you had to accumulate that much certainty before you started something. Imagine if you had to be as certain as you need to get to fire someone in order to hire them in the first place.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that'd be pretty much impossible.
1: Yeah, you would like never hire anybody. Yeah. So we're a little bit more willing to just like, you know, make those starting decisions under uncertainty, I think partly because we know we have the option to quit.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: then in order to make the quitting decision, we have to like accumulate an absurd amount of certainty to the point where we know there's no other choice.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm thinking about this in the context of, of relationships. You know, I ended a relationship after about two or three months. Just I realized I was like, this is not going to turn out the way I want it to. But part of it was because I felt like I'd seen the pattern before in a previous yep. relationship. And I was like, OK, you know what? Like, I've been down this road before and I am not going to let this continue um, because th- in the past I was like, oh, I let this drag on for 11 months. Yeah. You know, whereas this time it's like, all right, this is clearly making both of us miserable. Let's put an end to it now.
1: Yeah. So, but I feel like in
0: relationships, your you emotions know, are so heightened.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, experience is really helpful. Like, okay, I've seen this before. And so now I know the signals to watch out for, you know, but a lot of times you're not experienced and it's like, okay, well, what do I do if I haven't been through this a few times and then I'm stuck. And I think that's where getting somebody from the outside to help you Mm -hmm. is actually really helpful. Right. So get someone who's been through a bunch of experience, you know, sorry. You know, get somebody who's, you know, been through a bunch of relationships who you really respect, who knows you pretty well. You've expressed your values to them really clearly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, if you think about it, like, I'm sure that you've seen lots of people in relationships where you know for sure they should be breaking up with them, but they're not.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, don't say who.
0: <laughs> Obviously.
1: <laughs> but obviously, right? Yeah. But don't say who. I don't want you to have to say who. Um, but so it stands to reason if you're seeing that in other people, they're seeing that in you. Mm-hmm. So wouldn't it be nice if you could go talk to the people who see that in you and actually get them to tell you what they see? Because the thing is, they're generally not going to volunteer it on their own. No. Um, because our tendency is to cheerlead. Mm-hmm. So like, even if you go and you say, man, I'm thinking about quitting my job you know, but I don't know, they're going to cheerlead whatever decision you tell them you're making. Yeah. If you say, but I really think I should grit it out, you know, because like, it just feels like, I'm, you know, I should really, I should give it a go. They're going to be like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. You know, and if you say, I'm going to quit tomorrow, they'll be like, yeah, you do that. Great idea. Right. Because that's sort of our tendency is to kind of be supportive and and to cheerlead whatever whatever the person's decision is. But what you actually want to say to them is, I want you to tell me what you see and help me like with your perspective, in some cases, your experience in the case of a mentor, because I want to know the truth and don't worry about hurting my feelings because I'm looking for what's in my long-term best interest here Mm -hmm. and get someone to get in on that with you. And then, and then they can help you with the decision because then you don't have to wait around for like, you know, the fifth time Mm -hmm. that. You know, you've seen this pattern with someone, or or your third conference.
0: Yeah, well, that's right, you can get say. to that
1: decision quicker.
0: Well, I, that's why I always say, like, you know, what you want to hear feels good in the short run, but what you need to hear is actually good in the long run.
1: That that's exactly right. See, so, but you have to tell someone that that's what you want because otherwise, they're gonna they're gonna do the short term thing.
0: Yeah. Well, let's talk briefly about this whole idea of expected value and uh, Dave Chappelle and Stuart Butterfield because I think that those really struck me of people who could see long term that this wasn't going to turn out the way they wanted it to. But so many of us don't. I mean, I remember when the Chappelle thing happened, every one of us was like, one, we were pissed off because we wanted more Chappelle show. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. But beyond that, like, we thought who would, you know, walk away from this at the height of
2: their career.
1: Right. Which is also true of like uh, Seinfeld, Mm -hmm. Barry Sanders, you know, there's a there's we can name people who've walked Well, I just think of that bedroom. George
0: Costanza episode, right? You, you know which one I'm talking about, right? It's just like quit on a high note.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So, so here's the problem with quitting decisions is that they're what we would call expected value decisions. So what that means is that you have to make some sort of forecast of the future about what your long-term gains or losses are going to be. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so you have to be looking ahead. So just, just like simply for people to understand expected value, um, if we're flipping a coin and you're going to win $2, if you call the coin correctly, and you're going to lose a dollar if you don't, you'll win $2 half the time. So your gross, your gross earnings are going to be a dollar for every flip, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, If you win. And because it says 50 cents, 50% of, of $2. And then if you lose, you're going to lose a dollar 50% of the time. So it's 50% of a dollar is 50 cents. So you've got $1 on the gain side versus 50 cents on the loss side, which is positive 50 cents. So what that tells you is that for every dollar you bet, you're going to be making 50 cents. That's a pretty good return. But that's going to be what happens over the long run. So if you bet 10,000 times, you should, you know, on average, you're going to come away with $5,000. Now, notice that on any given flip, you you can't ever win 50 cents. You're either gonna win two dollars or lose a dollar. That that's where expected value gets a little tricky because you're thinking about what's gonna happen over the long run. So this this is kind of a hard thing to do. Um, and people might be saying, Okay, I get it for coin flips, but what does that have to do with like actual, like regular life decisions? And as you said, Stuart Butterfield, I think, brings up a, a good example of how to think in expected value really well. So Stuart Butterfield founded a company called Glitch. It was actually the second company he had founded. Uh, And Glitch was developing a game called Game Never Ending, which was a massive online role-playing world-building game. And it was a critic's darling. They said it was like Monty Python meets Dr. Seuss. They loved it. So uh, they've got the game out. and really they're they're building it through word of mouth, you know just kind of community building, and they've managed to get five thousand super sticky users, so these are people who are using the game twenty hours or more a week, and obviously they're the ones who are paying customers. Um, he's got the backing of some pretty big venture firms, and he has six million dollars in the bank so th- things are going pretty well. The problem though that everybody could see. Was that for? In order to get those five thousand users, they actually represented less than five percent of the people who had tried the game. So, you know, you had to get it in front of a, you know somewhere between ninety-five and a hundred people in order to get one person to play, and you know the other ninety-nine people or whatever would play seven minutes and leave on average. Okay, so that's a little bit of a sticky problem because you know you have to it's it you have to. A lot of people have to be aware of the game in order to get the paying customers. So they all decide. The founders and the investors decide they're going to do a huge marketing push, which they do. Um. So remember, they have been doing PR before, and now they're doing more traditional marketing, which is paid marketing. And they do this for six weeks in the the fall of um 2012. So uh, so they,
7: it goes. Sorry, I said. So it goes amazing. Week
1: over week growth is like 6%. I mean, it's really good. And we get up to November 11th and 12th, which is a weekend. And it's actually the best weekend they've had in terms of acquiring new users. And Stuart Butterfield goes to bed and he's really restless. He's stressed out. He finds himself unable to sleep. And the next morning he writes a note to his investors and his co-founders that says, I woke up this morning with the dead certainty that Glitch was over. So he just announces that he's shutting it down. So that seems really weird because New users were growing 6% week over week and then the 11th and 12th of November was actually like their best week. But what happened was that he was thinking about expected value. He was thinking about the long, the long run here. And what he realized was that if you made the assumption that you were going to continue to grow at the rate that they had been growing over the last six weeks, it would still take 31 weeks even to get break, to break even. And that that was an absurd assumption because, um, you know, at some point you're saturating the core gaming audience. Mm-hmm. So your customers become less and less valuable as you move along. Uh, and so he realized like, you know, 31 weeks was optimistic. And it was probably going to be like a lot more than that. And and at that point, he just kind of realized from an expectancy standpoint that it just wasn't a venture-scale business.
2: Yeah. No.
1: So he shut it
7: down. Now, his investors were quite surprised
1: and his co-founders were quite surprised, but he explained the math to them. And like, it's not clear if they really understood it, but I I think that they just sort of understood, well, what am I going to do? Like, he doesn't want to do do it. And- you know, Stuart Butterfield's like the the engine of this thing. So I guess we're we're just gonna stop. And Butterfield's gonna return the capital to the investors. Um now this, you know, may seem like, oh, what a sad story. I had shut his company down. But we have to realize like it's actually a really happy story.
7: Because <laughs>
1: yeah. it, no, it is because <laughs> if he figure if he knows that it's not gonna work out, why would he waste another minute of anybody's time on this project, he's got 6 mm-hmm. million in the bank. Should he spend that 6 million to find out what he already knows? Like, this is your point about the the employee where you had to get to the point where like, you couldn't take it anymore. Why, why didn't you do it before that? <laughs> think about how much you would have saved yeah, by, by doing absolutely. that. Right. Yeah. So, so he's figured out like, this isn't worth, like I'm not going to spend the $6 million <laughs> because I'm, I'm only going to find out what I already know today because I can think ahead. No. And then he also really? said, I didn't want to trap my employees in this because they were working mainly for equity. And I had determined that equity wasn't worth their time. So I wanted to be able to free them to be able to go do something else because they're brilliant, where they, their equity would actually be worth something. So he he shuts it down. So so I hope that you can see, I mean, Srini, I hope you can see that, like, that. if that's the end of the story, that is an incredibly happy ending. He returned $6 million to the investors that they could go invest in something that was going to be worthwhile. He let his employees go and be able to do something that was going to actually, they were going to find purpose and money and so on and so forth. He's freeing up his own time. All good, right? Yep. But then we get to sort of the second lesson of this. Because what ended up happening was literally, it was like immediate that he quits Glitch, he shuts it down, and then he says, hold on a second. We have this internal communication tool that our employees like really love. And it combines like kind of the best stuff of like email and instant messaging and and you can put attachments in there. And it's they they love it. Really good for team building. Didn't have a name, but they had been using it for quite a while over at Glitch. Yeah, And so he said, well, you know, they really love it. Like maybe maybe that's my next business.
2: <laughs> and so he
1: said, well, I should give it a name. And the name he gave it was searchable log of all company knowledge, which is Slack.
0: I did not actually know that's what it stood for.
1: Yes. Searchable log of all company knowledge. Ah. Um, Slack. So within two days, the investors have rolled their money into Slack. You know, and employees are working on Slack and, you know, we know what ends up happening to that. Yeah. And this is what I think is the right. <laughs> So this is what I think is so amazing about it. So there's a temptation to believe that that's why it's a happy ending, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but it's actually not. It's a happy ending, even if he doesn't ever develop Slack. And what's more important is this lesson, is that while he was working on Glitch, he couldn't see Slack. Mm -hmm. They had been using Slack for a long time. That was the venture scale business. But he couldn't see it until he quit Slack. I mean, until he quit Glitch. Because when we're pursuing something, it makes it not only so that's time and attention we can't can't use to pursue other things, but we also become myopic, Mm -hmm. where we can't even see the other opportunities that are available to us. So he now all of a sudden gets to see it. And he actually said to me, he goes, you know, I quit at this time when everybody thought that I was nuts, but I'm actually embarrassed because I knew it six weeks earlier. Mm. I knew it before we ever did the marketing push. But I I still agreed to the marketing push because I he said, I I didn't want to look like I was capricious or something, you know, or just got bored. Yeah. I wanted people to know that I was trying. So he was actually trying to accumulate more certainty for other people because he was worried about the criticism.
2: Yeah, I
0: remember you writing about that. I mean, I, honestly, I, I knew earlier than I, you know, pulled the plug also in the conference. So this actually segues perfectly into, I think, you know, sort of the final part of this that I want to cover, which is identity and quitting. And I, I want to bring back a clip from an old episode with my mentor, because I think, you know, this will tee up this whole concept of identity and quitting really nicely. Take a listen.
7: I worked with a gentleman who was a baker. He, he baked goods for a, a hostess. Hostess went out of business, filed bankruptcy. He lost his job. He had been working at hostess since the age of 22. He was 55. So everywhere he goes for 20 some odd years, he's saying to people in his life, I'm a baker. That's identity, right? Now he's no longer a baker. He can't get a bakery job. They've laid him off. He can't find work. He's out of work for 18 months. So he's thinking to himself, whether consciously or not, but I'm a baker. I'm a baker. Why am I not baking? Why do people not know me as a baker? Why can't I say I'm a baker, right? And whether that seems silly or not, that's what we do as human beings.
0: So I think that that really you know, a lot of ways summarized one of the things that you talk about, which is our own identity makes quitting so hard. And I think the startup founders are such a great example of that because I know you read about Ron Conway. Like I can tell you, like I honestly, like I, if I were to shut down unmistakable creative, I'd really be lost for a while. And I've seen this, you know, when I've talked to, you know, athletes who've kind of reached the end of their careers and there's this tremendous loss of identity when they quit. Um, so talking about how identity plays a role in our ability to not
1: quit. Yeah. So, you know, to the point of the baker, I mean, obviously, I mean, this is the thing about what can you see from the outside? Like you can see very clearly like, well, but why isn't he looking for work that isn't baking? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Like he's out of work for 18 months. He's searching for a baking job. Why is it? Why isn't he looking for something else? Um, and this is kind of what identity does to us because really the hardest thing to quit is who you are. And that is the thing that we do not, really don't want to abandon. And that's true both of like things we do, like being a baker, but also like our, our ideas, right? The beliefs that we have that really define us. So, so you can imagine like if, if you hold a mainstream belief that everybody else holds, that, that when you get new information is gonna be pretty easy to abandon because it doesn't define you in any way it doesn't make you different than any other people, right? But like, if you have a, a, a belief that's extreme, like I believe that the earth is flat,
2: mm-hmm.
1: then, you know, you can throw as much evidence at that as you want. And people are going to rationalize the evidence away because that, that belief now defines them because it's so unusual. Um, and this is true for like, not just flat earthers, but uh, John Brashears and Katie Milkman did a fun study where they just looked at uh, stock analysts and what their earnings forecasts were. And what they found was that when the analysts were making forecasts that were very mainstream and the actual earnings came in and they didn't bear out the forecast, they changed, the, the analysts changed their forecast. They just updated the forecast according to the new information. But when analysts made um, forecasts that were out of consensus, that were really unusual, then, when the actual earnings came in and didn't bear out the forecast, they didn't update their forecast. They doubled down on it, so they just refused to change their minds, which is a a form of quitting. Um, and it's because like when you're taking these, when you're sticking a stake in the ground, that's unusual. That becomes part of your identity. So that that's kind of like the first thing that that has to do with like ideas and like are we doing something that's that's defining us? But I think you know, to the baker thing, with We can see this, Uh, there's such a fun example of this that comes from a very big business because we need to realize, like, people can have these identities that they don't want to walk away from, but so can businesses. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So um, I'm sure you're familiar with the store Sears. Yeah. (laughs) I hope. (laughs) Right. So, and if you were to describe, like, Sears is a retail chain that had physical locations Mm -hmm. and at one time had a catalog. Is that a fair description of that? No, I think so. And they're also now bankrupt. They're dead. Yeah. So um, so Sears actually started in the late 1800s. They had a catalog. It was called the Book of Bargains. It was like 1, 512 pages. It, you know, it was when mail was becoming like pretty efficient. Uh, and it was to get products that people could get in cities to people who lived in more remote and rural areas. And like you could get kind of anything in there. I think you might. I think you could. I think you could buy a house in the catalog, if I recall. But like bicycles, whatever shoes, like anything you can think of, you could buy in this catalog. So super successful. Uh, uh, I think in the 1920s, Sears himself was worth like 26 billion dollars. I mean, 26 million dollars rather, 26 million dollars, which obviously in the 1920s was a ton of money. Yeah. Um. So they're doing really well with their with the catalog, and then people get cars, which. Gives them greater mobility and allows people to now get to stores more easily. That kind of cuts into their business a little bit. So they decide that they're going to open retail locations. That's how we come to Sears with actual physical locations. Um, and that business thrives. And by the 1950s, Sears represents 1% of US GNP. I mean, it was a big, it was a success. Now, then what happens is that the, the story is pretty simple. The Kmart's and Walmarts come along, they're like, you know, eventually Target pushing them from the bottom. And then the, you know, higher end chains like Neiman Marcus come and they're sort of squeezing them out of the top. And by the 90s, it's no longer the number one discount re, re, uh, discount um, retailer. Um, I think both Walmart and Kmart had it beat by then. Um, Target pretty quickly after that. Um, and then it's just a slow decline into bankruptcy. So that's the story we all know about Sears. You're wondering, what does that have to do with identity? Well, here it comes. Sears, uh, was not just a retail company. It was also a financial services company, which you probably don't know. It's not tied into their identity. It started because for their, uh, catalog customers, they needed to offer credit. So they had a banking division in the late 1800s, um, and then when they actually created those stores, because they realized there was this greater mobility because of the automobile, someone had the bright idea at Sears, which was a really bright idea, that people in these newfangled automobiles were going to need insurance. And so they decided they were going to offer insurance, car insurance, to customers in their stores. And they founded a company called Allstate Insurance. I don't know if you've heard of that company.
7: Yeah. <laughs>
1: Um and then you know we Allstate obviously it's owned by Sears it ends up being the largest insurer of personal liability uh thrives. in the 70s uh adding to their financial services empire they uh, acquire a company called Dean Witter which was a stock brokerage um just to give you a sense of how successful it was uh Morgan Stanley eventually acquired it and at the time it represented 40% of Morgan Stanley's net worth. So that's, it's market cap. So that's a big company that they had. And then uh, they also created the discover card. Um, also part of their financial services empire. And they acquired Covalo banker, which is a realtor.
2: Yeah.
1: So I don't, Srini, are you wondering how this company could possibly <laughs> be bankrupt if they owned all that stuff?
0: <laughs> well, I know how the story ends because I've read the book.
1: Yeah. So I, uh, you know, just to give you a sense of the value of these companies, like, I think Allstate alone, uh, I'm not sure what it is now, but at the time that I wrote the book, I think the market cap was like $40 billion. So it, it it's like, well, what happened then? Well, what happened was that, you know, as the retail business started faltering, which is the story that we all know, um, the shareholders were demanding action, you know? So you have this, faltering retail business and this thriving financial services business, it seems like from the outside looking in, the decision would be, well, let's just ditch the retail and let's go with the financial services. But what is Sears identity? (laughs) It's the retail business. They Mm -hmm. are a retailer. So what the board ends up deciding to do is to, quote unquote, get back to its retailing roots as if this is the problem. And they sell off Allstate, they sell off Dean Witter Discover, they sell off Coldwell Banker, in order to save the retail business, which obviously didn't work. Um, and I think this is like the baker walking around for eighteen months trying to find work.
2: Yeah.
1: Right. Like because that the only reason that happened is because nobody knew that they owned Allstate. Nobody knew that they were a financial services company. Everybody knew them as a I didn't retailer. I read your book. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, you got to save your identity. You can't quit your identity. So they sell off the other stuff.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. It makes me think about my own career as an author. You know, I did two books with Penguin. I mean, I think we're both part of the same imprint. I don't know if this book is all so portfolio, but I realized after the second book, I was trying to get a third book deal for about a year. Um, It wasn't happening. And I realized at a certain point, I was like, you know what? I got to come to terms with the fact that maybe this part of my career is done, that Published author with Penguin is no longer my identity, and pursuing it endlessly is a road to nowhere. And I realized right after that I was like, "Wow, there are a lot of other things I could do to make money that are a lot more lucrative."
1: Right, right. Well, so that's the Stuart Butterfield thing, right? Like yeah. abandon the identity, and then what you realized was, well, what could I be doing with that time?
0: Oh yeah, no. I mean, I my trade off was I looked at it this way, right? So you know, we raised investor money, and I said, "All right, if I get another six figure book contract, I'll get a windfall that." basically carries me for a couple of years. If I get to the point where Unmistakable Creator produces a return for investors, we sell the company, I have some sort of exit, I will be set up for life. Right. And I'm like, well, that's an obvious. Th- at that point, I was like, yeah, I don't need another book deal. And one of my friends was like, dude, you got your book deal because you self-published. And he was like, fair enough. And he was like, you don't need to write any more books. I got what I needed from it.
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. That's such a good way to think about it. Yeah. So I want to let you know, I'd like, we have four minutes. So yeah, let's
0: go. no, no, let's, let's wrap this let's up. Let's do it. Um, well, you know what? This has been uh, absolutely uh, fantastic. I mean, so let's wrap this up with two final things. Uh, one of the things that you say is this belief that optimism will get you to where you want to go faster is deeply embedded in popular culture, as evidenced by a host of perennials bestsellers, such as Norman Vincent Peale's The Power of Positive Thinking, Napoleon's Hill's Thinking Grow Rich, and The Secret, to just name a few. And you said the problem is that optimism causes you to overestimate both the likelihood and magnitude of success. That means that any calculation of your expected value will be wildly out of whack. The result, optimism unchecked by realism prevents you from quitting when you ought to walk away. And the thing is that people are getting this message drilled into their heads by mm-hmm. popular culture, popular media, you know, and self-help books. So how do we, you know, counteract that so we don't just yeah, I mean, end up in this delusionally optimistic state?
1: I think that this is related to what we talked about before about like you know what was it like don't bet your energy bet you know this is a not a money problem, an energy problem, or yeah, uh, don't have a plan b um you know you just gotta believe, yep, and just try to power through it and do it i I just think it's like super damaging uh how do you counteract it um you know, I don't know, I mean, the problem is that we're biased. To believe that kind of stuff.
2: Mm-hmm. We're
1: biased against quitting, you know, and so as long as there are people who will write those books, there are people who will read them. And I think it's very hard to, to kind of un undo. Mm-hmm. And it's honestly like a lot of the reason why I wrote this book, right? Like I, w- I was just kind of tired of that conversation. And, and then even when someone tries to give a nuanced Argument about it, which Angela Duckworth did in grit, her her book is great. Yeah. People misinterpreted it to go to go with what their what their preconceptions are. So what she's saying is find something you love and stick to it even if it's hard. Mm -hmm. She's not saying just stick to stuff. Yeah. Because that will build character. She's not saying, um, if you stick to things, you'll succeed. What she's saying is if you find something that you
7: love, and you stick to it, you'll succeed.
1: Yeah, Right? That's the part about like passion, the
7: mm-hmm. power of
1: perseverance and passion. You have to find the thing that you're passionate about. She just doesn't want you to say, like, never stop anything that you're starting. That's a misinterpretation of her work. But people interpret it that way anyway. This grit is good. I had someone write into me who had heard me on a podcast and said, oh, I'm so happy that I heard you because I was in a job with a toxic boss and I thought if I quit, it would show a lack of character. But then I heard you talking and I quit and I'm so much happier. So, you know, the thing is, I don't, I, Srini, I really don't know. Like I'm writing this book, trying to make a dent. But this is the way we think. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, we believe that optimism will carry the day. Mm -hmm. Stick to things and you'll succeed. Winners never quit and quitters never win. You know, all that stuff. And I think it's like, it's hard to sort of knock through that. That's a lot of sort of built in cognition that you're trying to that you're trying to push against. Um, and I think it takes some thoughtfulness and someone at least trying to tell the other side of the story, which hopefully I'm doing a little bit of.
0: Yeah. Well, um,
2: in the interest of time, I want to finish my final question, which I know you've heard me ask before. What do you think it is that makes somebody
7: or something unmistakable?
2: Mm-hmm.
7: I really do feel like it's the ability to say I'm wrong or even just to say, I can see your perspective. And just because your perspective is different than mine, I don't think you're wrong. Hmm. Beautiful. Um, Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time
2: to join us
0: and to share your wisdom and insights with our listeners. Uh, As I said, this is my favorite of your books. I think everybody listening to this should read it. Uh, So for that, for them, where can they find out more about you, your work, the book and everything else you're up to?
1: Well, you can always follow me on Twitter at Annie Duke, but you can also go to AnnieDuke.com and there you can find links to buy my books. You can find links to contact me, um, to hire me if you want to. Uh, you can find a link to sign up for my newsletter. Um, So hopefully people will find lots of info about me there. And then I would also love for people to go check out the Alliance for Decision Education, which is a nonprofit I co-founded to try to get decision education into every K K through 12 classroom. So hopefully people will go explore that also.
0: Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that.